we've got Glenn Matlock of Sex Pistols fame. Uh, he was also in Rich Kids and now is in Faces. And uh, Dylan got a chance to talk to him over at uh, Pow Pow Sound. How did that go, Dylan? It was great, man. I got to go to John Furr, who's been a, a regular guest host of ours, uh, helped me record it over at his studio, and it was just a really awesome little setup he had there. But um, yeah, it was really cool talking to Glenn Matlock, of course, like hearing, uh, or, you know, we kind of didn't talk a ton about the sex whistles here and there. I guess it might have been touched on, but there's a lot of other stuff about his career that I find really interesting, like that first Rich Kids record. Uh, this was kind of star-studded and Nick Ronson was involved and he kind of just from the jump started rattling off these amazing stories about people of that kind of world. I don't want to let all the cat out of the bag on on some of the ground that was covered there, but it was cool, man. And uh, he's been doing a lot of solo work um, before. I think they've been postponed because of the pandemic, but, you know, doing a lot of um, gigs of his own music. But yeah, uh, it was cool to dig into his story a little bit and hear about how how it all kind of started and where it is now. But um, yeah, I think it made for a pretty good episode. I'm excited for you to hear it. Awesome. Thanks for doing that. I'm excited to hear it. Y'all enjoy. with you i guess we can go ahead and jump right into it yes jump right in well man thank you for coming on the show today i mean i've uh been a fan for years and and been listening to revisiting everything lately and just kind of just reminding myself how great some of that stuff is man like in particular the uh the rich kids record was just it's just right up my alley man i feel like it's like 10 years ahead of its time it's beautiful um yeah, I think we were a little bit of a red arrow time. It was sort of like a bridgehead between punk and new romanticism, I suppose. Lots of the bands that went to become well known as new romantics and cleaned up used to come and watch us. My mates with Gary Kemp, we did a gig a couple of years back, a Rich Kids show, and Steve New, the guitarist, sadly passed away, getting on for 10 years ago now. And Gary Kemp stood in for him. And when we was rehearsing, he said, I used to come and see you at the Nashville, which was like the sort of club pub thing we played at when we were starting out. And he said that you was a big influence. And he said, me doing this, him playing with the rich kids, must have been what it was like for you when you played with the Faces. You know, I was, I was a big Faces fan and I ended up playing with them. And that was kind of cool. And then when we were playing, um, where did we play? In Birmingham. Duran Duran was down the front, you know, watching us. So, in fact, they tried to nick Steve New as their guitarist, which is a bit cheeky. Yeah, I mean, I'm, it's it's wild seeing you uh, link up with the faces like that. You know, it's kind of a dream come true. But, I mean, I guess you guys were, uh, I mean, you were kind of buddies with, you know, obviously you were buddies with Ian and he was yeah. playing in Rich Kids. How did you guys get connected way back, like, you know, before you were even 
doing the Rich Kids record. Well, but I didn't meet him before the Rich Kids record. Okay. When, we was, when we was actually doing the Rich Kids record, there's a track on the album called Cheap Emotions that I felt needs some piano on it. And Mick Ronson can play the piano pretty darn well, but he's like a classical kind of pianist, like grade eight we have over it. And um, he was trying to do some rock and roll stuff. And I said, it's not kind of right, Mick, you know, which is a bit funny coming from me. It's got to be more rock and roll. And he said, what, like Jerry Lee Lewis? And I said, not really, more like Ian McGlagan. And he said, well, I don't really play like that. And then the engineer overheard us and he said, Ian McGlagan was down here last week doing a session for somebody. I've got his phone number. So he just got Mick to call him up. <laughs> and that was it. And he came down the next day. He weren't really doing a lot at the time. And I got on really well with him. And then he, he, he came and did some gigs with us. And then one drunken night, I asked him to be, if he was interested in joining the band, which is a bit silly, but he said, I'll think about it. And he wasn't really doing anything at the time. And this was in the days before mobile phones. Anyway, we sort of called it a night. And then over breakfast the next morning, everybody sort of filters down. And I told the other guys in the band what I'd asked Ian. And then Matt came down and um, was sitting there. And there's a bit of an elephant in the room. And the other guys split. And I said, oh, well, did you think about what I said last night? And he said, well, you know what, Glenn? He said, I'm really flattered if you asked me, and I would consider it. I said, but I, I called home last night and spoke to Kim, his wife, and she said, I've had a phone call to go and do an album session with somebody in Paris. And I said, well, who's that? And he said, the Rolling Stones. I said, well, you better go and do that then. So the <laughs> Rolling Stones stole my cable player. Well, damn. I got to say, you know, but... You know, that was for the Miss You album. You know, he plays on Miss You. It's oh, yeah. album, yeah. Man, yeah. and when I listen to those Faces records, one of the things that stands out the most is, I mean, the keys are just phenomenal. I mean, they're... It, it's fantastic. I mean, I, I, I think as a, as a Hammond player, he was up there with Booker T. And as a keyboard player, he sounds like Emma Glagan. Nobody really sounds like him. It's just something. And it's kind of weird with a keyboard because keyboards sound like keyboards, but it's the way the people play them that makes the difference. You know, very inventive. Yeah. And it was a perfect file for Ron Wood. You know, it was like just watching them, being in the rehearsal room when we was rehearsing, it, it was an eye opener. You know, and I, I actually think Ron Wood's lost in the Rolling Stones. He's great by himself, you know, with just a keyboard as a foil. It's like when you hear the latest Stones records, it, it don't sound like Ron Wood playing. It just sounds like a guitarist. Whereas in the faces, it sounded like Ronnie Wood. You know, and Mac brought that out of him, I think. Yeah, I think that's a big takeaway from those faces records too, is just how much Ron's adding to it. Now, I guess people, you know, those that first, maybe even the first couple Rod Stewart records, some people will kind of credit Ron for being you know, a huge hand in those as well, you know? And I mean, sure, I guess yeah. all of those guys, really. Yeah. 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 I love that stuff. It's, it's you know, I uh, just always end up falling back to it. It's just incredible music, man. But, man, I, I wanted to take it even further back, you know, before you were playing with any of these bands, um, you know, when you're just a kid growing up in London, do you remember the some of the first things that sort of piqued your interest and sparked kind of, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've told a story a few times, but when I was a really young kid, when I was about four or five years old, we had, I don't know if you know what it is in America, but we had a radiogram. It's like a big wooden piece of furniture with a, um, a radio in it and a, and a record player. 
and somewhere to keep your records and a big speaker and big mahogany thing. And my uncle, who was about ten, he was like my young, mum's younger brother, was about 10 years older than me, and he'd sort of been a bit of a teddy boy, not really, but sort of, and then was kind of moving on. And he gave me his old 78 records. So the first records I ever put on were Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis Presley, um, El Bostick was somebody, um, did Raunchy, um, you know, and things like that. And he put this big, heavy shellac dish on, uh, uh, disc on, and they went round so fast and so heavy. As a kid, I used to go and stand, it was like lighting a, like lighting a firework, you know, light blue touch paper and retire immediately. And I used to go and hide over the other side of the room in case it came flying off and took your head off. But that, that was fantastic, you know, and the sound from this radiogram was great, and you listen to the sort of Teddy Bear by Elvis Presley or Great Balls of Fire, or the Big Bopper, yeah, there you go, um, Chantilly Lace we had, and on the B-side is the Purple People Eater meets the Witch Doctor. I loved that as a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I feel like you... There were three Purple People Eaters, <laughs> four, there were five, there were six Purple Eaters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, it, it's, it's always amazing to hear what what random you know bits of music get to your ears when you're that young? Did you yeah. did you have musical parents or siblings or anything? Not, not really, but my nan, who and you know we lived in sort of part of inner London, with terrace houses, and we lived at eighteen, and they lived at twenty eight, which was only five doors along because you got odd numbers on one side and even numbers on the other. And she had a piano, and she she could play a bit, you know, like a sort of pop pianist kind of style. Um, not that she played in pubs, but yeah, so she had some musical stuff, but she didn't really teach me anything. It was just because there was an instrument around, you know. But then as time moved on a little bit, it, it kind of coincided with, you know, the Beatles and those bands starting to come through. And again, I'm pretty young. And we didn't have a national radio station that played pop music. And the pirate radio stations came out and that coincided with kids having transistor radios and there was this, a station called Radio Luxembourg, which wasn't really a the pirate station, but it was in Luxembourg. So it, it broadcast across the North Sea and the, the reception wasn't very good, but that's what everybody listened to. And that's where you heard the kinks and the early who and the stones and the small faces and the yardbirds for the first time. And he weren't really supposed to be listening to it. So it also had an, an illicitness to itself. And then, just moving on from that, this fantastic TV show came out. It was the best one ever. It was called Ready, Steady, Go. And all those bands would, would be on it. And, um, you know, The Animals and Dusty Springfield was on it quite a lot. And she'd gone to America and discovered Tamla Motown. And we'd have Smokey Robinson and Junior Walker playing live. It was fantastic. That's what I got me into music. Right, yeah. Together somehow, you know. Yeah, that's kind of a golden age of, of you know, broadcasting music to new yeah, ears. And then, yeah, and if you haven't seen it, look up on YouTube, um, Ready, Study, Go. It was fantastic. Yeah, I've seen a little bit of it, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a, a whole rabbit hole of it on YouTube. Well, the, the only thing with it is that back then, they never used to keep the tapes. They used to record over them, which is a track. So a few things have survived. I saw a good thing not that long ago, but the Rolling Stones, they judge, judge some competition and they also do I Got You, Babe. Then there was a woman presenter on it called Kathy McGowan 
and she's they're dressed up like um, Sonny and Cher, and the bloke who's supposed to be Sonny is Brian Jones. <laughs> it's, wow. it's funny, and they're miming, and and um, Keith Richards is playing the tuba. It's good. I definitely got to find that man. Did you ever? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, fun. Did you ever see that? I think it was somewhat short-lived, but when they uh, when they gave Mark Bolin his own kind of show along yeah, those lines, yeah, I saw that as well. I mean, that was later. That was in the oh early, yeah, of course, early seventies, and it was a. It's kind of funny, you know. Like I was getting into music then. I was at school by then, and people were listening to things like Jeffro Tull and Emerson Lake and Palmer, and maybe the reggae that was starting to come through. You know, Toots and Maytales. And then somebody would bring in um, Slider. And um, everybody kind of laughed at them, thought it was a bit too teeny bop. But everybody listens to T-Rex now and not Jeff Rotol, you know, so there you go. Yeah, absolutely, man. So when were you, uh, you know, playing with other people at all before you went to art school? Or was it kind of later that you picked up with other, other musicians? I sort of, I was learning to play the guitar. It took a long time and I'm still learning. I then got a cheap bass and I had a couple of rehearsals with some mates at school, but that, that didn't get very far. And then I met Stephen Paul. I got a job at Malcolm McLaren's Teddy Boy Shop and I met Stephen Paul. And I overheard them talking that they weren't happy with their bass player. And I said, I play bass and we was about the same age group. And as the circle starts off, they said, oh, really? What's your favourite band? And I said, The Faces. And then went, that's ours too. That's what got me the gig. Hell yeah. And then that's when I was still at school. And then pretty soon after that, I applied and went to art school. But, I, you know, I could draw a bit and paint a bit. I was interested in it. But the main reason I went to art school was because I'd read that all the bands that I'd liked had gone to art school. So I went there to try and get in a band. But I met the band I ended up in outside of art school and actually took them to art school and we did our first gigs there. So it was all, all the wrong way around, really, you know. Yeah, but it all worked out, man. <laughs> oh, yeah, kind of, yeah. Well, I, I got to ask, you know, when you were a kid and you got that job at, at Malcolm's shop, were you were you interested in fashion before then or were you just like a kid wanting to yeah, make some cash? I'd been, I'd been working somewhere else and I made an almighty cock-up with their payment system. And I knew if I went back the next week, I'd be in trouble. And I'd also heard about this shop down the King's Road that sold brothel creepers and it, it, it was sort of coming in as a bit of a fashion. So I thought I'd go and have a look. And I just really dug this place, mainly because I had an old radiogram there like we used to have. And I was hanging out in there and I was, I was, and this was midweek and it was a bit, I was there a bit too long, you know, to be comfortable without buying something. And the guy said to me, he said, well, can I help you? And I said, not, not having enough money to buy these shoes that look kind of cool. I found myself saying, well, yeah, do you need anybody to work here? And the guy said, well, as it happens, I'm leaving at the weekend. Call this guy up. And he gave me Malcolm McLaren's number, and I started working there the next week. So it was all about happenstance, really. But there was something about the place that just drew you to it. And it, it wasn't then, but it sort of quite quickly became the hippest place to be in London on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, absolutely. It's wild to think about how how the fashion side of this whole story has had, you know, at least as long of a reach as the music side of it, you know, whether kids were trying to look. Well, like yeah, but if you think, if you think about every musical genre, there's normally quite a, there's a look that goes with it, you know, whether it's the hippie thing or whether it's the, you know, real rock and roll 
kind of thing or neuromantics or you know industrial bands like Kraftwerk and stuff it's there's a look to these things and the, and the mod stuff you know small faces and the who they were mods when they first came through you know mods were like the real hip thing to be in in London at the time which is if you see um, ready, steady, go. It's kind of populated by mods in the audience. Yeah, that's spread like wildfire, man. It, it's it's cool to think about how, you know, you know. I was listening to something the other day where they were talking about um, this small show that the Pistols played. You know, where all the members of Joy Division and Buzzcocks were there, and you know, I know that Manchester and Paddington aren't that that far, but it's just you know, I just never connected the dots that. Well, yeah, they might not be that far in miles, although Manchester is about 200 miles from London. But it's a different world up there, and it certainly was back then. Uh, it was like the difference between being in where? Like America. It's like the difference between being on Park, on Madison Avenue in New York or Akron, Ohio. <laughs> it's a world of difference, you know? Yeah. And, I mean, you know, was there was there a bit of a camaraderie between the the two scenes, or were they just you know? Yeah, I mean, no, but nobody nobody argued or anything. And I mean, we were from London. We thought we were the cat's whiskers. These kids sort of didn't really have anything, and we're just trying to get something together. But they was into music, and they was interested in us. So likewise, we was a bit interested in them. But I mean, the people who booked the first show we played, that were it with the fledgling Buzzcocks, and they only booked us so they could have a band to support for their band. You know, so that showed some kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. Just everybody, everybody was looking for what was going on in England the, musically. It was like glam rock had been and gone. The, the progressive bands had, had sort of moved return America but didn't really have much to say to us anyway there was some pretty naff pop music although there always is no matter what's going on and there was a bit of a hole with, with what was going on and we wanted to do something that was for us and other people wanted to do that as well nobody really knew what they was looking for they just knew what they didn't want but we're going to do it anyway and that's where we came from we was the first of the bunch in England you know plus because of Malcolm McLaren who'd been going backwards and forwards to the States he heard about the New York fledgling scene with bands like the Ramones and Blondie and the Heartbreakers and television. All these bands we'd heard about, but nobody had actually made any records at that time. So we didn't know what they sounded like. It was kind of weird. We was hip to this thing that only existed in people's minds. It was odd. I think that's for the better. I think that might have had a big effect on why what you guys need to do didn't sound like anyone else, you know, I mean, it might've matched, yeah. maybe matched the energy that you were, you know, that you heard about, but it just sounds uniquely. Well, I mean, the, the, the thing, the closest thing out of those New York bands was possibly the Ramones. And when we saw them for the first time, they came to England in early 76, maybe we went to see them. And we was kind of a bit taken aback that they was on the same page as us. But I think it's because both sides of the Atlantic, everybody got fed up with the same old things at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, was there anything, like, what, what were the main things that were just, you know, I mean, of course, there were so many things, but was there, do you remember any, like, standout things that were 
frustrating you to the point where you needed to express yourself about it? Well, it was a whole political thing going on in England. Right. Everybody was on strike and there's power cuts and IRA bombings and there was a real air of despondency. And I think actually we're about to go back to that now with this stupid Brexit thing we're having, which I'm vehemently against. But it's too late now. Um, yeah, but out of, you know, the thing is with art or, or popular culture, it, it thrives, but it's got something to kick against. You know, when everything's kind of pleasant and nice, I don't think the arts are great. I mean, one of Picasso's greatest paintings is Guernica, and that was because of Guernica got bombed in Spain by the Nazis practicing for the Second World War, you know. Yeah. Well, I heard a good quote from uh, from John Prine recently where somebody was like, you know, why is it so much harder to write a happy song than a sad song or a frustrated song? And he said, well, when you're having a, a good time, nobody wants to stop and write a song, you know? Well, so, yeah. But when you're pissed off and frustrated, you almost need it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah I totally agree with that. It's, it's, it's hard. You know? Don't like writing songs moaning about things, but you got to try and put some kind of positive spin on things. But, you know, that John Prine generation, the, the older I get, the more I appreciate it. I always thought it was a bunch of old hippies. But it was them railing against it and putting into words what their friends and acquaintances were saying about the Vietnam War, you know. It's, yeah, it's all important stuff. Yeah, and it's, it's, I mean, you're right. It informed the music. It's, you know, doesn't make the context much better, but it does at least... At least some good art came out of it. Um, well, I mean, taking it back to what you were saying about, you know, the rich kids and working with Mick Ronson, I mean, how did you establish that connection? Where, what was the common thread there that, that got you? Well, there wasn't one other than that we had two managers, a guy called Jerry Hempstead and Pete Wormsley. And Pete Wormsley used to be a tour manager. And they had an office, and I was sitting in the office just before we was making the record or thinking about the record. And the phone rang, and I answered the phone, and this northern voice said, uh, he said, oh, is Peter there, please? And I said, no, can I take a message? He said, he said it's Michael. I said, it's not Michael Ronson, is it? And he said, well, it is, actually. He said, who are you? And I said, Glenn. And he went, oh, hello, Glenn Matlock. And I went, yeah. I said, well, how do you know who I am? He said, well, Peter told me about you. And I said, well, we're looking to make a record. You just signed OMI. And we're rehearsing tomorrow. Do you want to come down? He went, all right, then. I said, bring your guitar. And he did. And we played a couple of songs, and then we went to the pub, and we got on famously. <laughs> In fact, you know what? One of the most proudest moments of my life, I became friends with his family. And when poor old Mick wasn't very well, his sister, Maggie Ronson, um, was organising things to keep his mind off of not being well. And we all went to Walthamstow Dog Track to watch Greyhound Racing together and we all put bets on and I don't know if you've ever seen a greyhound race but they're pretty greyhound race but they're pretty darn quick and the race started and Mick started running off and I said where are you going and he said that dog on the outside looks really good I'm going to try and bet on him before the end of the race which only lasted about a minute and that was wow. kind of funny bless him he was great but he was such a fantastic musician Great guy. And also, I was really proud of, over a couple of years, he did a couple of projects which didn't really come to much. 
he always asked me to get involved with it and he wanted to put a band together. And the band he, he wanted to get was Simon Kirk on drums, Paul Rogers, him and me playing bass. And it didn't come to anything, but he, that he even thought of me as a, as a bass player. Right. Can you imagine the record that would have come out of those sessions? Yeah, it could have been good, you know. And, and through him, I, I got to play with Ian Hunter. I, I did quite a bit of work on the Never Alone with a Schizophrenic album. Um, and that was with Ronson and Hunter. And in fact, Simon Kirk was supposed to do that, but he wasn't available. And Clive Bunker did it. Um, so that was kind of interesting. Yeah, that's that's wild to think about, man. And I know, I mean, I know that you kind of, uh, you know, I've heard you describe yourself as, or at least how you think of yourself as primarily a songwriter. Do you feel like when you were younger, were there, uh, was it like lyric driven songwriting that was inspiring you or are you more so, was it like composition? What, what, what aspect yeah, of, of both that? I mean, I've got two sort of real musical songwriting heroes. One being Ronnie Lane from the faces who never really got to sing his songs because Rod Stewart was such a great singer. He's got a particular slant on things. And Ray Davis is a songwriter. You know, now I don't measure up to them, but sometimes you get a burning idea in your head lyrically about something, and then you get on with it. Sometimes you get a great tune. Sometimes, you you know, you sort of muddle through a little bit. But I, I get walking down the street, ideas come to me, and it drives you mad sometimes. So the only way to kind of deal with it is to pick up a guitar and finish off all these half ideas in your head. Um, and then you're off, you know, before you do that, before too long, you've got an album's worth of stuff, you know. So I've been putting out records over the past few years with my own back, really. You know? I'm touring around the world, doing solo shows and band shows and, you know, not top of the pops, but people seem to want to book me. So, yeah. Well, speaking of those records, man, I, I've been, you know, just spinning them on repeat lately and that... A lot of them really stand out to me, but a, a couple songs in particular that really spoke to me, like uh, Won't Put the Brakes on Me and Speak Too Soon. I mean, those oh, are fantastic oh, yeah, but, songs. You know what? I'm glad you said Speak Too Soon because that's one of my favorite songs I've written for a that's long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, stuff like that's kind of what I've been doing. Where it fits into the scheme of things, I probably don't. But I think that's a good thing. You know, I think if everybody's doing the same thing all the time, there's no point doing it because somebody else is probably doing it better with better backup and a big record company behind him. You might as well do something that's got a bit more. I think what my stuff's got is it's got character, you know, and I think I've lived quite an interesting life. So I've got stuff to sing about, you know. Yeah. If it wants to fit in, it's overrated, anyways, man. Stand out. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, and, and any success I've had it's been by sticking out like a sore thumb. You know, if if the Sex Pistols had did what was actually going on in London in a very small way at that time, we would have been a light jazz rock group, you know? Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, like you said, I mean, the the unique aspects of all of your projects are like far removed from what your peers were doing at the time, which is what keeps it exciting, you know? Yeah, hopefully, yeah. But, you know, I also think music and rock and roll is like a baton race. You know, you, you're, you're passing on the baton from what came just before you and you grab hold of it and you have it for a bit and then you pass it on to somebody else. So I've been quite proud, pleased, 
with my career that through what I did with the pistols and and subsequently other stuff, I've got to work with both people who came just before us, you know, like kind of Mick Ransom and Spiders from Mars or Iggy Pop. He asked me to play with them. And then I've worked with people like Primal Scream and people like that who came after that. You know, and it's it, it, things just get passed on a little bit all the time. And I think I think that's a good thing. People always say the pistols were a big sea change. I think that's I think that's wrong. You know, it might be perceived that way. But I, I think in reality it was different. Yeah. And man, speaking of that Iggy Pop record, you know, that not only does that, you know, of course Iggy as a whole stands out, you know, nothing sounds quite like Iggy, but I would say, you know, I put Soldier on again. It had been a little while since I'd heard that one. And I forgot that, I mean, that record just is completely, to me, it sounds wildly different than any other Iggy record, you know? Well, I think I had a bit of a hand in that. I mean, not all of it, but some of it. But some some of his songs are in it. You know, Loco Mosquito, the lyrics are so funny, but also quite spot on. Yeah, you know, that, that one stands out. I mean, it is. Oh, and Take Care of Me is a song I co-wrote with him, but I just came up with music. In fact, I had a working title for a song called Forget Me Not, which he liked, which he quite likes. And I said, no, you, you're Iggy Pop. You can't sing a song named after a flower. right? So you can't use it unless you write some more words. And he came up with um, Take Care of Me. But one of, the, one of the lines, he was saying this, girl in Germany that he kind of wanted to split up with but couldn't because he was frightened of her dad, <laughs> believe it or not. But there's a line in it, and she was, that's when he was living in Berlin. And she's quite a nice girl, I've met her since, but he's got a line in it, um, I'm sinking like crazy, no, I need somebody to pull me up because I'm sinking like crazy in my sauerkraut. <laughs> it's fantastic. I love it, man. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so it, you know, it, you know, they're not just words. They, you, you, when you know what's going on in somebody's life and head, it all makes a bit more sense, you know. Yeah, and it, it, it seemed like Soldier had like, I don't know if it's a video for every song, but there's so many. Uh, there's like a, a a series of videos for several of them at least, and they're all like kind of a. They look like they're shot around the same time, similar kind of uh, theme and arc to the video, and it, it almost seems like. It's a very completist record in the sense well, that, like, but, uh, but I think they were going to sort of give him a bit of a big push, you know. I mean, through doing that, I met David Bowie, you know. Yeah. And in fact, in fact, on um, Loco Mosquito, he actually mixed that. He's not credited. He, he was mixed in New York, and he pushes. There's a big bass run in the middle of it, and it gets really loud because Bowie pushed it up. So I'm quite pleased about that. Yeah, you're working with Mick and Bowie, man. You're going to get. I mean. I mean, obviously separate occasions, but, you know, both of them are bringing, you know, a really refined ear to the project, to say the yeah. least. Um, yeah. Well, and you and you ended up, I mean, you guys toured a good bit in support of Soldier, right? Well, I did the tour. The reason I got the gig with Iggy, I'd just split up the rich kids because they all wanted to become new romantics and I still wanted to rock and roll a little bit. And I was sitting at home, I didn't know what I was going to do. I wanted to be great if the phone rang. And I'm not kidding you, the phone rang about two minutes later. And this guy said, is Glenn Matlock there? And I said, yes, speaking. And, like, and he said, well, you won't know me. My name's Peter Davis. And I manage Iggy Pop. And we're in London. Can we invite you down for a drink? And the reason they did that was because they'd made the album New Values. 
and they were going to tour, and the bloke who played bass on the album was Jackie Clark, and he was going to play second guitar on the tour, so they were short of a bass player, and they had the same agent as me, John Giddens, who now does the Isle of Wight Festival, and he knew the rich kids had just split up, so I think he suggested I might be a good bass player for him. Next thing, I'm on tour around the Europe room. So we did that, and then we recorded at the end of the the European and British tour. Um, we wrote and recorded the, the Soldier album, then we did a tour of the States and then mixed it over there. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, one thing that, that I haven't, you know, I, I guess it all kind of goes back to how, you, you know, you, though you might have this well of influences, you're, you're really always striving, which I think most bands are to, to stand out and, and some like more than just a, a, a collection of, you know, outside input. But as far as your, your approach to bass in particular, I have like, you know, a lot of times I'll hear somebody and I'll be like, man, I can, you know, there's a taste of James Jamerson here and there's this. I'm glad but, you picked up on that. Yeah. And, and you I, know and what, you know what, the very last Sex Pistols we, we did and will probably be the ever the last gig ever that we did we played in spain in the basque country a place called vitoria and there was it was like a festival and it was all other things and um um duff mckagan was there you know from guns and roses and he had another band called loaded and they were on the bit down the bill somewhere and his mates were steve jones and i met duff we actually all went mountain biking in la together once um but anyway, it was the first time he'd seen me play with a band. And he said afterwards, he said, Glenn, you do all those Tamla Motown kind of runs and stuff. He said, it's fantastic. You know, which he hadn't thought about before. So he picked up on that. So that's kind of good. And yeah, I think James Jameson is probably my favourite bass player. Oh, but wow. I like kind of a few other people and all, you know, like I thought Ronnie Lane was a really good bass player. Ant Whistle, McCartney. Um, I like the guy from Cannes, you know, Holger Cusico, although I don't know how to pronounce it properly. He was good. Well, it's yeah. funny, man, like, uh, speaking of James, like, it just, you know, it, it's, <sighs> on this show in particular, he's come up so many times. Uh, we, you know, we had a, one of our early episodes was with Mike Watt, who's played, you know, with Iggy in the studio. Yeah, I'm right, yeah. And he, uh, I mean, he is a, I've, I don't know if I've ever met anyone who is, quite so vocal and passionate about their love for James Jamerson. We had him on for an episode where we literally, he and a, 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 a friend of ours that is a bit of a bass head too. I mean, they, 90% of it was just deep dive on, you know, shared appreciation for him. I mean, it's just wild. That's the way kind of cool. There's a guy, there's a guy who lives in LA called Steve, I forget his surname, Steve. And he played bass with me one time. I did a tour with Hugh Cornwall. He plays with Hugh Cornwall. And he's a dead ringer for Tom Jones. First time I met him, I said, Has anybody told you you look like Tom Jones? And he said, Well, it's not unusual people say that. <laughs> right? um, but he actually went on like an antiques roadshow kind of program in the States because he had, which he thought was, and I think it was proven right, he actually had James Jameson's. Um, MPEG port flex. Wow. How cool, how cool is that? Yeah, dude, that's wild. And I, you know, I noticed I was, uh, you know, just speaking of old gear, I saw that you were posting on, uh, online about searching for that old bass that you, you kind of 
hawked yeah. off or whatever a while back? Have you had any luck? Uh... No, I, I did, it went. It went. It was, it was beautiful. It was just 61 precision, which oh, I never yeah. used with a pistol first time around. But it was really, it was so light and it was pray, played in nicely. And and it used to belong to the tremolos as well, if you find that, believe it or not. There you go. Uh, well, if you if uh, you pick up a bass right now, what what is that? What's your go-to? Precision or P bass, as you call them in the states. Yeah, oh, can't go wrong with that. Yeah, as long as it's got a thin neck, you know, like a C-shaped neck. Do you ever do any of that? Uh, any of that, like muting, put the put the foam in or anything? I've tried it, but then it's just more mucking around. I've I've still got my Rickenbacker aid, which I used on Anakin UK while it's in a museum, but it's actually got a bit on the on the, the cover over the, you know, the bridge, the tailpiece. It's got a bit of foam inside it and you can screw it up or down to mute the thing, but you play with it a couple of times and then it's just a load of nonsense, really, you know? Right, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is like, you know, when you when you do add that padding, it does make the Motown sound maybe even easier to find, but... It, yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I kind of like the lines more than... Right, than the... Than the the, the, the tone, you know, it's right. kind of, it's what it comes out like, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I know that you said that you went to art school almost, you know, just to in hopes of starting a band. But do you feel like outside of the obvious and that it did lead to you, it was a stepping stone <laughs> to you join a band? Do you feel like that's had an influence on your career as a whole, your time there? Like, um, is it yeah, I mean, anything? I think art school. I think it was a bit different by the time I went, but. In the 60s, people went because they were probably lazy sods, could draw a little bit, didn't really know what they wanted to do, and would get a grant for going, you know, so you get money off the government for going. And that had changed by the time that I'd gone. I, I didn't qualify for a grant. That's why I worked at Malcolm Shop. But you meet a lot of like-minded people there, and their people are interested in ideas. And, you know, it doesn't really matter what their discipline is, whether it's it's kind of art or printing or photography or fashion design or sculpture. Everybody's looking for, like, a good idea, and you talk, and it encourages talking. Plus, the art school I went to was in the middle of London, in the middle of Soho, and in the early to mid-70s when I went, it, it was quite a melting pot of interesting characters. You know, you walk down the street... And you see Francis Bacon and Lucian Freud going into a drinking club. If, you know, it's, you don't get that in many places. And that was kind of cool. You know? And so, you know, before you're at art school, you know, I, and you have to forgive me for, I mean, you know, I, I unfortunately hadn't had the chance to spend any time over in London, but I, you know, I grew up obviously here in South Carolina, surrounded by country bumpkins who I think, <laughs> is partly what inspired me to want to be creative, you know, get, get away from some of the backwards thinking and the lack of appreciation of the arts. But before you went to art school, like when you were a kid, did you feel like you, any sort of creative people were tangible? Like, you know, was it within reach or was it kind of art school that opened it all up? No, no, I went because I was interested in sort of drawing and painting and I knew a little bit about things. Also where I was brought up, in London, um, sort of a working-class neighbourhood, but it was one of the first places in England that had um, 
quite a heavy duty West Indian immigrant community. And I went to school, I went to infant school with them. Um, and you know, we played games and it was like blacks against whites, which was always a bad idea because they always beat us. But you know, in the summer, every, they'd all have their windows open and they'd have, they'd have blue beat records pumping out loud, you know, and you'd be listening to the Scatterlights and Laura Lakin and stuff like that, which you wouldn't have done normally if you didn't live somewhere like that. And then also it wasn't very far from the Portobello Road, which is kind of a hipper part of London where it was back then. So the older guys, you know, they'd be down there and they were kind of getting into the you see some guy in an Afghan coat and you think, what's that all about, you know? And then going back to Rod Stewart, I, I mean, I thought his early lyrics, fantastic. That song, um, um, Italian Girl, she was tall, thin and tarty and she drove a Maserati faster than sound I was having bound. But then he says, but I must have looked a creep in my army surplus Jeep. And actually what happened back then when he was writing that song, there was a whole, I think they the US Army had sold off a load of cheap Jeeps in London or in England. And the guy who had the first Afghan coat and flares and hipster trousers also had an army surplus Jeep, you know, and it all kind of mixed in somehow. And just being in a place that was a bit of a melting pot, it, it made you think about different things. Yeah. Quite what the conclusion is, you don't know, but you do then know that there's another there's another world out there that might be better than the one that you're in. And for me, music was the key to travelling the world up until recently. I mean, the last couple of years, I've been all over, just doing my own thing, South America and the States and Australia. I went to play in Palestine. I did a thing there. I played on the actual border between North and South Korea with some charity thing. And it's all through being in the Sex Pistols 40 years ago, you know? Yeah. And, you know, speaking of, you know, doing your own thing and, and you know, getting to lean into that a bit, I know obviously things are stifled a bit right now, to say the least, but uh, I believe I heard that, you know, at least uh, – part of last year you were working on a new record kind of before the bottom fell out on I, I've got a new one in the can and what happened was I'd finished it by this time last year um, I did a tour over here I had El Slickstam with me who plays guitar with me and then I got invited to go um, whenever St. Patrick's Day is I got invited by the Dropkick Murphys who I've done some touring with in Europe before to play with them on St. Patrick's Day in Boston, which would have been great. So I was going to do that. And then I had about a dozen just solo acoustic shows, which I liked doing. And then I was going to end up in New York and sit in on the mixing of the album that I just made. And But I couldn't do any of that. The guy mixed it, but I still got to tweak it. But I've got a really good new album ready to go. But until I can finish and mixing it, when the record companies I've been talking to, sort of smaller ones, they all want a tour to promote it, and there's no tours to be had, so it's all on ice a little bit at the moment. But I've um, I've got a little studio at home that um, you know, like a songwriting studio on my Mac computer. So I've been writing stuff and had a last couple of days like something pretty good to come together actually. So it's called well, Head on the Stick. Okay, <laughs> nice. Well, I don't expect you to let the cat out of the bag entirely on it, but 
if, if you had to, I mean, I know it's tough to describe your own music, but if you, if you were to describe this particular album, what would you kind of say you're touching on the most? Well, I mean, we've had all the shit of Brexit going on and Trumpism and stuff. So lyrically, it's got stuff to do with that. It's kind of all about kicking the back against the pricks and coming up on the winning side somehow. Um, I don't know. My stuff's just my stuff, really. Yeah. It's more metal, you know. Um, it's kind of, you know, but there's, there's lots going on in my music, you know, sort of rock and roll and... And pop music and a bit of soul and all blended in there. I, I actually got and I was quite pleased. I bumped into and asked him, I said, what are you doing tomorrow? And he said, not a lot, really. I said, do you want to come in the studio with me? And he went, yeah, all right. And I had Norman Watroy come down. He was the bass player in the Blockheads. And he'd come and play. And he's a great sort of soul bass player. And I didn't realise he played with Gino Rushington and the Ram Jam Band. You know, he's getting on a bit. So that was a bit of a coup. Um, yeah. So there you go. Well, I, I'm excited for it, man. Maybe, uh, you know, if if you're. Um, oh, and also on a track, I've got um, got this Japanese guy, Hot Eye. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's a bloke who wrote the. He's like the Japanese Jeff Beck, and he wrote the um, Kill Bill theme tune. Okay. Which, yeah. So I've got a kind of mixture of interesting people on it. Well, I'm excited to hear it, man, and uh. You know, whenever it comes out, I might reach out to you again to just touch base. Yeah, yeah, yeah do that. What but, I might do, though, now, a couple of tracks sound a bit more mixed than the other one. I mean, they're all mixed, but they need tweaking. Um, but I've, I've been starting to listen to it again, a couple of tracks actually a bit more complete than I thought. So I might release a single from it soon just to keep things ticking over a little bit. Oh, yeah. Are you at the point where you're removed enough from from the, like – labor intensive side of or you know the you know when you're listening and listening can you hear it and not be you know are, are you you know well, overly critical uh, <laughs> or just you know when you're when you've heard it so many times you get as much as you I might know, love it you, you get burned out do you know what I, I remember when we did our first recording session with the pistols chris spedding sort of produced it and he put a record out and i said do you just still listen to that i, I like that one he said, Glenn, he said, by the time you've written a song and then done a demo of it and then convinced somebody to give you some proper money to record it properly, he said, and then you record it properly and then they want it remixed and they remix it and all that. He said, by the time it finally comes out, he said, you're so sick of it, you never want to hear it again. Right. <laughs> it's kind of true. Yeah. I yeah. mean, really, I'd like to be like a sausage machine. You know, in a factory, you've got a good outlet for your stuff and you just write a song and you do it as well as you can. You put it out and it's gone, you know, and then you do the next one. And then you do the next one. And for some people, they get in that position. I've kind of got there and starts and fits with different projects. But, um, yeah, it's just having that kind of outlet, really, that I think is thwarting a lot of creative types at the moment, just because of what's going on in the world. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And the other frustrating thing at the moment is you can't mingle with anybody. So, you know, creative people thrive on on um, on a sort of a, the social intercourse of ideas floating around. But on the other hand, home recording studios turn people like me into little Hitlers. 
you know, and you get it exactly how you like, and then you finally have to do some some gigs, and then the guys want to sort of put their own stamp on things, and then you think, well, all the things you're coming up with, I spent two weeks going through at home by myself on that particular guitar part, guitar part, and I've ended up with this. So please just play what I say, you know, and I'll make sure you get paid. <laughs> it's kind of like that. Yeah. So I bet there's a lot of that going on around the world at the moment, you know. You know, and then when we're all free to kind of mingle again, it's going to be lots of re- arguments and rehearsal studios. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'll maybe you'll be maybe you'll be nostalgic for the for the you know the arguments by then. Who knows? But maybe. Yeah. Well, I gotta ask. You know. Yeah, you but I, yeah, I, my, my my things with life is with people like that. It's like, I'm not arguing. I'm telling you. hell yeah that's a that's a good approach um but you know you 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 speak about you know your you know your appreciation for songwriters have you done obviously you know the pistols recorded some of the material that you had written without you playing on it but outside of that have you done a much where you've like we've written songs explicitly for someone else to record i i have but I, i haven't really had much success with that to be honest i don't know why i've just never kind of I, I, in fact, I do know why, because every time you speak to people at record companies and, and um, publishing things, they, they just don't get that the whole idea really is to try and be a bit different. And they just want more of the same. And I, that tends to be a bit of sort of penny-pinching um, accountants who've somehow got a, a creative role and they don't really get it. It just annoys me so much that I don't really want to play that game. So I, perhaps I cut off my own nose to spark my face a bit, but... That's what happened, you know. And when I write, you know, you write songs just because it all comes together kind of good. And then I've ended up with an album, you know, songs that other people could have done, but they're not, so I might as well put an album up. That's kind of why it works for me. You know? Well, I, I can't help but assume that, you know, maybe even more so now than when you were younger that, you know, these Record industry people are, you know, leaning towards something that feels like a, a sure thing financially. So are you trying to be, you know, outside of the box in the way that you approach things, you know, to them scares them off because it doesn't sound like something that they're already making money off of, you know? Yeah. It's a shame. Yeah, there's only so many times you can bang on those kind of doors. Fucking their loss, I think. <laughs> yeah, man. Save them for your record. Fuck it. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, maybe at one stage I would have quite liked to have been a, a, a songwriter in the Brill Building, you know. I mean, I like that story, I think it's Sam and Dave, you know, when I was trying to write a song and one of them had a good part and he said, hey, I've got something, you know. And the other guy was in the in the bathroom and he said, okay, he said, hold on, I'm coming. And that's how they got the title for the song, you know. <laughs> I'd like to be in that position, but sometimes these things work out for you and sometimes they don't. But I'm kind of happy-ish, you know. It's just the way the cookie crumbles. Well, uh, you know, obviously you've you've accomplished amazing things and, you know, linking up with the faces is a dream come true as as well as many other things that you've Well, done. you know, out of doing that, it was like, although I was chuffed to be doing it, and we didn't do that many shows, and yet again, the Rolling Stones spot my career because Ronnie Wood this time, not Ian McGlagan, got the call from Rolling Stones to go back to work with him. Right. So we could have done more 
stuff. What am I? Well, I was going to say something. I forget now. Um, what was he talking about? Um, yeah, no, just for the faces. I, I think as well as I was, I was kind of lucky and fortunate to be to be doing it. I think I was the right bloke for the job, and I brought something to the table that made it work. You know, I'd seen them do it with Bill Wyman standing in for Ronnie Lane, and it was dreadful. We hadn't learnt the songs. He was trying to change the parts, maybe because. It was him doing it, but it's the Ronnie Lane parts that make him work, you know. Right. The guy well, was kind of clever enough to realise, I think, you know. Yeah. Well, hope hopefully uh Mick and Keith will give Ronnie a you know a break long enough for y'all to collaborate again. Yeah. It's actually funny, he lives around the corner from me, Ronnie, but he's not moving. I mean, I haven't this year, obviously, but you see him pushing the pram down the road. He's, he's young kids in this, but funny seeing Ronnie Wood walking past your house pushing a pram. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Going well, to the park. Yeah. I guess it makes sense that he's <laughs> hanging out at home like anyone else right now. Yeah. yeah. Funnily sure. enough, right before uh, you know the shutdown and everything happened in the states, um, and I guess just worldwide, I uh, you know my dad is a huge Stones fan. He's got the Forty Licks logo tattooed on his arm and. Uh, Right. I thought it would be, you know, it'd be, you know, I've never been to a concert that's like, you know, whatever, eighty thousand people. That's not necessarily my scene, but I do love the Stones, and and always thought it'd be nice to go see him with him. I bought tickets, and like two weeks later, <laughs> the shutdown happened. So uh, I'm just crossing my fingers. Hopefully, it'll happen, just because I think it'll be a nice experience with, you know, with the old man. But uh, yeah, that'd be a good thing. Yeah, yeah. So fingers crossed. But who knows, man? The world's obviously. A little bit on its head right now, but we'll see. Um, Good. All right. Well, I'm going to crack on. I'm going to do a bit more of my recording, and I want to get something from the shop around the corner before it shuts, so I'm going to do that. Well, you do it, man, and thank you so much for coming on the show, and uh, I can't wait to hear the new music, and, you know, just uh, we appreciate everything you've done artistically and creatively, man. It's it's inspiring, and just thanks for being you. Cheer me up knowing. Good. It's more where that came from as well. <laughs> Hell yeah. We're looking forward to it. Yeah. All right, Dylan. See ya. Thanks a lot, pal. Bye. Bye. This has been a Comfort Monk Production.